Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Longtime Iowa journalist David Yepsen joining us from the capital city of Iowa, just uh, in the countdown to this year's historic caucuses. Uh, we're going to spend an hour talking about times past, but also what's going to be happening this year. Let me start by asking when the Iowa caucus first hit the political radar. The first uh, time they hit political radar was 1972. Iowa had always had caucuses, but it was in 1972 that the Democratic Party uh, first chain started operating under new rules. I always tell people the, the Iowa caucuses, as we know them today, were born in uh, 1968s in the streets of Chicago when the Democratic Party tore itself apart over the war. The party decided to open up its process to more, so more people could attend. And in doing so, uh, in 1972, uh, you had a series of events that go into the nominating process, the national convention, the state conventions, the congressional district conventions, the county conventions, and the, the precincts. Uh, and so the, the state party, in order to allow more people to participate, backed this up uh, in the calendar uh, into February of 1972, which was very early. And uh, so that was the first year that it, it really became significant. George McGovern uh, won uh, second place. It was unexpected. And it, I think it's important uh, for, for a couple reasons. Um, Gary Hart, who was uh, George McGovern's uh, campaign manager, and Senator McGovern were looking around for a place to get some media attention and a little buzz going. Uh, as it headed in, as the contest headed into the all-important New Hampshire primary. Um, and it, it worked for them. Um, the uh, uh, Hart and McGovern mobilized the anti-war movement in the state, uh, and those people turned out and finished a, a strong second place against uh, Ed Muskie, who was the, uh, the front-runner at the time. And there were a few reporters, uh, national re political reporters, who came to Iowa to cover that. And um, one of them was um, uh, Johnny Apple of the New York Times, who, in his story uh, about the, one of his stories about the caucuses, said uh, that, that McGovern um, had an unexpectedly strong second place showing. So it was the first time I think where. The expectations game got played, and we can talk more about that. Um, but uh, but having national media, like uh, particularly someone of Apple's stature, um, uh, covering this thing started to legitimize it. McGovern 
went on to win the nomination, uh, and that really sent a signal that the, the potency of the anti-war movement and also um, uh, that there was something going on out there in Iowa that was worth paying attention to. Well, we're going to have an opportunity to look back in history with you during this time, but before we do that, a little bit more about organization and how they work. But first, the, uh, the caucus is, as I mentioned, going to be uh, guaranteed to be historic because at the same time that that uh, the Senate impeachment trial is going on. Uh, and I'm wondering, lots of debate already in the national media and among the political uh, folks about the impact of that on the four senators who are currently competing in the caucuses and, and what it might do to them in these last weeks of campaigning. What's it feel like on the ground, and what are the local political experts saying about the impact of it? Well, it's unprecedented. Um, it it, it sidelines a, a good segment of the campaign. Um, people are going to have to be figuring out ways to do things electronically. Um, the digital campaign will be out in, in full force. Uh, campaigns uh, are, are scheduling surrogate uh, campaigners to be with them. There, we'll see a few spouses and, and, uh, and children here. Um, and it really has slowed the campaign. In addition, it's brutally cold weather. Uh, and uh, that that too has slowed the campaign. So it's a it is a it is a, a different sort of s system. The, all the focus this year is on the Democratic uh, caucus. But uh, are the Republicans going to caucus? And are there any candidates who are canvassing the state other than uh, the president and his surrogates? Uh, yes, uh, the, the Republicans will have a caucus, and they also plan uh, to take their traditional straw poll. There have been a few uh, visits by uh, William Weld, uh, former Congressman Walsh, um, but it, they're, they're not doing anything uh, uh, substantial. There's no organization on the ground for them. Why is Iowa, uh, from a cultural standpoint, a caucus state? Uh, it's been that way f for many, many years, going back to uh, 1916, I believe. It's just the way the two parties have chosen to structure themselves and organize themselves. You have to, you have the basic element of government, the precinct, um, and and that's simply the way that Iowa has always done it. It it became important in 1972 uh, after when it became early and the earliest. So the fa it's it's uh, important because it's early. It's not early because it's important. We're going to show people a bit of a caucus from 2016. For those who ever haven't seen them, C-SPAN has routinely, for the past couple decades, televised caucuses in action. We're going to show a little bit of video so people can see what they are, and then I'd like you to describe exactly what a caucus is and what it does. I mean, I am the next generation of this country, and I know thirty thousand dollars of student loan debt. And Hillary does not have a plan to help yes, she out. Does. She has more plans than no, ever in everything, and it's not about raising your taxes. But I'm not okay with the status quo anymore. I am not going to be right to reserve what we have. I'm going to fight for my future. My future and is free health care and free education. Who's going to pay for free health care and education? Somebody's going to pay for it. The corporations. Everyone's going to get taxed. If you think you're not going to get taxed. So in a local school or other kind of gathering place and a lot of discussion and debate going on, what's accomplished during a caucus? The party organizes itself. It conducts a lot of routine business, uh, electing committee uh, members, central committee members, uh, raising a little money, finding out who's active. 
the early caucuses are important because they're breaking down, starting to select delegates to the state, to the county convention. And this is where Iowa becomes important because in the democratic process, this is the first state in the country where people actually express a preference uh, for a presidential candidate and elect people to uh, the, the, the elect delegates to the county convention. And that's the first time that that sort of preference gets uh, expressed. So everyone's watching for the tea leaves. Um, you know, it's interesting, Susan, the, the, the term caucus uh, is believed to be a Native American term uh, for that means a meeting of tribal leaders. And when the caucuses for many, many decades were organized, it was exactly that. It was a handful of people who were active in both parties who met uh, in somebody's living room uh, and uh, and talked about party business in the neighborhood and um, and and they were the leaders. Uh, now it's morphed into a thing where it really the whole tribe shows up uh, in both parties to participate in these meetings. A year ago, you told Politico that you thought the floors were going to buckle in Iowa when the caucus gathered because there was so much interest. Now that we're really just uh, days away from it, uh, what is the anticipation for how many people are going to participate, and how does that compare with history? Well, it may be the largest turnout uh, ever on the Democratic side. The, no one knows for sure. The state chair uh, has talked uh, that it could be more than uh, 200,000. I've heard the figure 300,000. Um, I think there are, it, it is really a victim of its own success, that this repeated, it, it's important, uh, people, Iowans have been told so many times how important they are, they've, they've come to actually believe it, uh, and they're participating, and it's a great uh, statewide exercise in civic education. Uh, it has, it attracts new people into the process, people show up at caucuses, and later they run for office. I met Tom Vilsack, the governor, when at, outside a, a, a precinct caucus in, uh, in, in 1987. So it's an entry point for people to get involved. Uh, it raises some money, although these events do cost a lot of money for the parties to, to stage. Uh, and it's just a great uh, form of, uh, of, of civic engagement that a lot of people are excited about. And, and given the passions that exist in American politics right now, that tends to drive turnout. Uh, on both sides, partic particularly on the Democratic side. Uh, this campaign really ramped up the day after the 2016 election, and Democrats said, oh, my God, we've got to do something to, uh, to stop Trump. And it's, it's been... Uh, earlier and bigger than, the, than than ever before. Well, Iowa's first in the nation status is routinely challenged, uh, often on demographics and size of the state, number of delegates ultimately selected. Make the case for people around the country. Why does it deserve to be first? Well, it, it uh, is first be because um, that's the way the party set up its rules. Um, and it, it partly, I think, the Iowans in, 19, in the 19... In the after the 68 convention and in 1972, um, they, they did know what they were doing in terms of setting up the earliest event. They never anticipated that this kind of thing would morph into something like this. But they did know that they'd be, uh, be first. And, and there was, in fact, some talk that um, Harold Hughes, who was uh, then a U.S. senator, Democratic senator from Iowa, was thinking about a presidential run in 1972. So there was some talk about doing this event to, uh, to help him. Um, the, the, the fact it's first has, uh, continues because the country can't agree on a, on a different way to do this. Um, and, and so inertia just keeps it going. Um, the, 
There's also campaigns who have a vested interest in this process, um, and and it you, we, they fight the next fight, uh, uh, even starting now. Uh, it, it, it's significant to me that Mike Pence, Vice President Pence, is going to be uh, in Iowa before the caucus is doing a bus trip in Western Iowa. He's visited the same flood twice. Uh, so we already have the beginnings of the 2024 race. And in, in case the Democrats don't win the White House, uh, there's going to be about 15 people who have spent time here in Iowa as candidates and the idea of changing the rules is not going to go over well with them. They, they say, wait a minute, I'm, I've, got, uh, I've got an investment in, in Iowa and in New Hampshire, and so they're not interested in, uh, in changing the rules. And frankly, you know, we do have a number of presidents who get there on their second go, and uh, we're, we're seeing a whole lot of uh, political figures working this state hard who are going to be uh, political leaders in America for the next generation. So they're not real interested in changing it. No one can agree on a different way to do it. Um, and some of the criticism uh, comes from people who lose campaigns here, uh, who are jealous of the influence that Iowa and New Hampshire has uh, have. And so that's, you know, it's when it, everyone can agree, of course, that the demographics of this state, are, it's a lily white state, uh, rural. But the, the argument is made that that's not all bad. First of all, uh, it did provide uh, a big boost to the first African-American president. Uh, it did um, elevate Hillary Clinton some with an early victory uh, in 2016. On the Republican side, uh, they point out that uh, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, uh, Cuban-Americans uh, have come forward and won. And, and Iowa right now with Pete Buttigieg uh, is poised to give a, a big boost uh, to the first openly gay presidential candidate. So um, the they're feeling that a lot of Iowans have say, well, w yeah, we're white, but it's not exactly a hostile place for uh, candidates of color or diverse candidates to come uh, and work. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is, as I said, inertia. What is the alternative? And if you move it to another state, you create uh, a whole, the same argument can be made. There are very few states that are t typical. Um, if you, some states, like Illinois, for example, uh, which is often cited as a, as a, uh, as a more typical state, you know, they have a, a great history of political corruption. Uh, and it's not at all clear that the nation is uh, going to concede to a state like Illinois um, the right to have such a big an influence when, when they have governors in prison and aldermen out on bond and... Uh, so I, I don't think the country would buy into that. And so every four years, there's always this discussion that, uh, oh, this is terrible. We have to find another way to do it. The country can't agree on it, on a different way to do it. Um, and there are unintended consequences for other options. If you like money in politics, uh, you love a regional primary. Um, and the, what has happened in both parties to meet some of that criticism is that Iowa, New Hampshire... South Carolina and Nevada are now have uh, early or allowed be in both parties uh, as the jumping off point. And that is, in that is specifically designed to meet uh, some of this uh, criticism. And one more point that, that I think is particularly relevant this cycle. Yes, this is a rural state, uh, but that's not a bad thing for Democrats. Because uh, whether you like the Electoral College or not, 
there is a, a rural skew to the Electoral College. Uh, the founders set it up that way, a big state, small state compromise. And um, until you change the Electoral College, that's going to continue to be the way we elect presidents. Uh, rural areas have a disproportionate influence uh, in the Electoral College, and Democrats lost. Uh, Hillary Clinton lost because in 2016 because they did not, she did not, and Democrats didn't perform well in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, even Florida has a, a, a significant rural component um, to its electorate. So this isn't a bad place for Democrats this cycle to come and test their message and learn about how to address the problems and concerns that rural Americans have. So before we start looking back in history, would you tell our viewers a little bit about your own history in covering the caucuses? Well, I'm uh, born and raised in Jefferson, Iowa, and had no great aspirations as a young reporter other than to cover politics for the largest newspaper in the state. Um, and I was great; was really excited to get a job at the, the Des Moines Register in 1974. And uh, as a young reporter uh, covering local governments, I was sort of given pieces of the '76 campaign to cover. More senior reporters were leading the charge, but. Um, I certainly had a lifelong interest in politics, uh, and I just happened to be the, uh, the the right guy at the right time as this thing unfolded and my own career uh, unfolded and evolved, uh, which for 30-some years uh, left me in a position as uh, one of the lead political reporters in the state covering uh, presidential caucuses. The joke is that the... That David Jepson is important once every four years, and then the candidates leave, and he turns back into a pumpkin. And uh, I think that's probably about right. Well, you've left the register a few years ago. Uh, would you tell us what you're doing right now? Uh, well, I'm uh, semi-retired. I, uh, I left the register to go to work and run the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University, uh, an organization that Senator Paul Simon started after he left the Senate. Worked with students, uh, taught politics uh, at the university, taught a political writing class at the university. Uh, and then I retired in uh, 2016 and returned to Iowa. And as it turned out, uh, Iowa Public Television, uh, now called Iowa PBS, was looking for someone to host uh, a weekly uh, news talk show that they have. And so I'm doing that now, which kind of keeps me a little bit in uh, covering the game, but. Uh, uh, primarily trying to be retired. <laughs> well, we're appreciative that you're spending time with us for this hour. Uh, uh, let, me, <laughs> let me start with 1976, the first caucus that you covered, and also the year the caucuses really went on the map. Uh, the Democrats, uh, and it's all about Jimmy Carter. So tell us the Jimmy Carter story, story in 1976. Well, Jimmy Carter and specifically Hamilton Jordan picked up on the theme that Gary Hart and George McGovern had of work hard in Iowa, do well as a springboard uh, into uh, New Hampshire to get money, momentum, media attention. Uh, so they came and, and raised it, the, the stakes. So they spent more time. Other candidates were, were coming here. It was the jumping off point. Uh, and, and I think uh, Johnny Apple and national media particularly were paying attention. They, they looked at it and said in 72, Iowa was telling us something about the war and the disaffection. So the national media uh, started to pay attention. And so you have sort of a rolling 
ball here. Politicians came, and national media came, and that meant politicians wanted to spend more time here, and uh, and that really raised it uh, to a, a high, much higher profile going into the, the New Hampshire primary. President Jimmy Carter, um, he didn't win the caucuses. He got more vote than votes than any other candidate. Uh, he was uh, the uncommitted delegates actually got more votes. Actually won the caucuses, if you will. Uh, but Jimmy Carter uh, not only set the template and made it work, he went all the way to the White House. And that really put the, the events on the map. Um, as a side note, there were also some tea leaves in the Republican side. Uh, they didn't, Republicans didn't do a lot of counting, but there were some uh, estimates made of uh, President Ford's strength and Ronald Reagan's strength as a challenger. And President Ford was... Um, he he, narrowed, he won, but it was a weak showing. Uh, and later on, in retrospect, uh, you could see that really t- telegraphed that President Ford was had a very weak hold on the on the Republican Party, and it, it proved out in November that he was uh, unable to to win a full term for we, himself. But we, Jimmy Carter was the one who, I think, put this on the map. We have a little bit of video of uh, former President Carter talking about his strategy in Iowa. We'll watch. Uh, it would be quite difficult now for anyone to do as we did and to campaign from schoolhouse to schoolhouse to, to courthouse and stand in line and hand out pamphlets in factory shifts early in the morning, uh, meet with farmers, make speeches from the auctioneer's desk it's at uh, hog sale barns in Iowa. That's the way we ran our campaign. And uh, if, if I had faced then... Uh, a candidate with $20 million in the bank who was able to dominate television in New Hampshire or in Iowa or in Florida, I doubt seriously that I could have won in those states. Do you agree? I think that's true. Um, it, it's changed a lot since, since Jimmy Carter was here. Some famous television footage of him working on a noon cooking show uh, here in Iowa, cooking a fish for, for dinner with, with the host. And, I, I mean, it was just very, uh, it was grassroots, it was small, it was much more fun for a few reporters. You could hop in the back seat of a car with a candidate and maybe an aide and drive off and have a good conversation. Uh, and now these events over the years have changed and morphed and are much different than those earlier events. They are bigger, not only because of the size, um, it's, it's, as I've mentioned, it's not an intimate thing anymore. But w- the Internet now exists in campaign. We have digital campaigning, a lot of paid television ads, but also a lot of uh, digital media that has a big influence. And money has changed. Um, after Citizens United, uh, there's just a lot more money sloshing around in politics now. So campaigns don't necessarily have to be here to generate uh, media attention. Uh, and they certainly don't have to be here be here to generate money. Um, many candidates, we're, we're seeing two billionaires, Tom Steyer and, and Michael Bloomberg, uh, running. So some of the rules of this game that Carter laid out in 76 are starting to change. I'm going to fast forward to 1988. There were competitive caucuses on both sides. Uh, for the Democrats, uh, the ultimate nominee, Michael Dukakis, came in third with 22 percent. Likewise, on the Republican side, the ultimate nominee, George H.W. Bush, came in third with 18 percent. What does that tell us about Iowa? 
Bell, uh, the, Iowa uh, winnows the field. That's a state comment Howard Baker made in 1980 when he said uh, he finished third place, I think. I, the, the, uh, I've been, Iowa winnows the field, and I've been winnowed in. So the first real function of Iowa became to elevate a candidate, as it did with Carter, or to cull the field, to cut that field down to size, and then the race moves on um, to New Hampshire. Bob Dole was the winner in 1988 with 37%. Uh, Senator Dole uh, competed a few times in the caucuses. Uh, uh, he has credited his victories in the state to longtime Senator Chuck Grassley. I wanted to use that as a way to ask you about Chuck Grassley and Tom Harkin's influence on the Iowa caucuses over the years. Uh, it's, it's been enormous. Uh, they're bo both, both Senator Grassley's case, an influential senator, uh, Senator Harkin, uh, has told me that in 1984, when he won his uh, Senate seat, defeated Roger Jepson, the incumbent Republican, that he would, that Harkin would not have gone to the U.S. Senate had not a one election were it not for the, the organization that the Democrats built in 1984, um, and Ronald Reagan and the Republicans was uncontested, so they didn't have quite the organization. So Tom Harkin has said that these caucuses uh, are of help. Uh, were of help to him in getting elected to the Senate. But both men um, are big on giving advice to their uh, fellow party members about how to campaign and issues and, and places to go and things to do. Um, for the most part, um, I think they've stayed out of the game of in endorsing candidates. I think Senator Harkin, I think he did once with, uh, with Howard Dean. Uh, but they've, they've been a, 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 an important factor. He, uh, Senator Harkin made his own bid for the uh, presidency in 1992. Can you talk about that effort? Well, it, he wasn't. He didn't go anywhere. A lot of us wondered why is he trying to do this. But you know, I remembered too. Uh, I didn't get too dismissive of it because a lot of people thought Jimmy Carter wasn't going anywhere. You know, the famous the headline or a, a story in uh, Georgia papers that Jimmy Carter is running for what, and. Uh, you know, when I would come go to go with went with Harkin to uh, New Hampshire to campaign, um, people there were very welcoming. Well, come on in, Senator, have a chair. It, hometown people, home state people, tend to see their local person through a different lens than they see than the people in Iowa and New Hampshire see them. Uh, and so I learned not to get too dismissive of uh, of anybody at this early stage uh, in in the game. So by 1996, President Clinton was uh, in his re-elect bid. On the Republican side, once again, Bob Dole with Pat Buchanan in the race. Bob Dole won in Iowa with 26 percent to Pat Buchanan's 23. Uh, would you talk about Pat Buchanan and the populist movement in the state and how it has influenced the caucuses over the years? Well, this is uh, the Midwest. Populism uh, is an important strain in the politics of this region and has been since the, the, the country was started. Um, and in Pat Buchanan's case, I, I think Buchanan, um, he, um, he surprised, he surprised uh, Republicans with how strong he was. And that was a tea leaf for something to come. And I, I think you can draw a line right from Pat Buchanan's candidacy and his campaign uh, straight to uh, President Trump's victories. Uh, and in and, and that, that, that sort of that populism. But there's also a populism on the left, too. And um, you saw that, for example, in, uh, in George McGovern and some of Tom Harkin's campaigning. 
Um, so, um, you know, that's that's just a, an important uh, little guy, uh, a little touch of isolationism in it uh, that exists. It's a strain that exists in, in Iowa politics and in the, in the region. And I might add um, that if you look at these results, uh, you'll see a Midwestern regional advantage for candidates in either party. You look at the names of people who, who've done well here, McGovern of South Dakota, Dole of Kansas, Gephardt of, of Missouri. Uh, it, it, there's a, there is a, a home court advantage for candidates from the Midwest, and I think there's probably a little bit of that, too, in the uh, New England regional advantage for candidates campaigning in New Hampshire. And in addition to the populist uh, part of the party and their appeal to candidates, uh, the Christian conservatives have also had an important role to play in Iowa. Could you explain how? Well, um, religion is an important part of American politics everywhere, and it's certainly true here. There's a religious left. If you think about it, the, the, you go back to slavery. Uh, the, the church and religion played an important uh, role uh, in, uh, in the abolitionist movement. In prohibition, uh, the, the church and, and churches were very uh, influential there. The anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. Uh, so I, I do think that religion is an important factor in politics in the state, in both parties. Uh, and on the Republican side, uh, it's become more pronounced. It particularly, you saw that with the the candidacy of um, Pat Robertson in uh, in 1988, where he um, beat uh, George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, at a straw poll leading up to the caucuses that Republicans held, uh, his strong showing. And that, to me, was uh, a, a real key point because it brought a lot of religious conservatives into active politics uh, before they, many, uh, many religious conservatives sort of... Uh, felt that they should stay away from politics, uh, that politics was dirty and they shouldn't get involved in it. Uh, and and Robertson really uh, started to change that and brought a lot of new people into the into the Republican Party. Many of them today are, uh, you know, party leaders. But ever since that time, religious conservatives, evangelical voters on the right, um, have played an important role to the point now where the criticism on the Republican side is made that really they're all the Republican caucuses seem to do is decide which uh, religious conservative they're going to elevate uh, <laughs> to the nomination. Uh, and, and party moderates are just uh, 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 the thing of the past. We're going to move to the next election cycle in 2000. The nation was just coming off the impeachment of President Clinton. On the Democratic side, uh, Al Gore, the, in, the uh, incumbent vice president or the uh, Clinton vice president, competed in the state, as did Bill Bradley, former New Jersey senator. Uh, vice President Al Gore with 63 percent. On the GOP side, George W. Bush, Steve Forbes, Alan Keyes, the top three uh, results getters in the state of Iowa. Senator John McCain bypassed Iowa that year. What should we know about the 2000 caucuses? Well, you're starting to see um, uh, this this notion of three tickets out of Iowa that um, the, I always say that there were those, or three plane tickets from, Man, from, from Des Moines to Manchester, uh, first-class coach and standby uh, because candidates were winnowed out. And if you didn't finish in the top three, your chances were uh, were limited. You just didn't get much of a uh, of a bounce there. 
Uh, so th that was at work on the on the Republican side. On the on the Democratic side, the Gore Bradley um, contest. Gore won handily. Bradley was more to the left. The issue was health care. Uh, and so what we're what we're starting to see by that time is that on the Democratic side, um, while yes, it, it, the, the accusation is made that, that the whole process is pulls Democrats too far to the left um, to get elected in November, it's also true that among different fields of candidates, a more centrist Democrat will uh, do well. Going back to Jimmy Carter, there were a lot more. There were a couple candidates to his left in that 76 campaign. Gore was much more in the center uh, than Bradley. Bradley was much more on the, the progressive side of things. So I, I tend to keep that in mind when you see a large field of candidates like we have this time. Who's carving up, who's getting to the center? Who's uh, in the middle? That it isn't always the most liberal candidate in the race who, uh, who wins. In fact, it's oftentimes the most liberal candidate does not win. So 2004, Bush re-elect. On the Democratic side, there was quite a field of candidates. Uh, John Kerry came in first in 2004. John Edwards uh, second. Howard Dean third at 17 percent. And Richard Gephardt fourth at 11.2. But there's a, p a piece of video from the 2004 Iowa caucuses that has become iconic. I, I, th I think it's fair to say. We're going to watch and have you talk about the uh, impact of this one moment in Iowa that year. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! Well, David Yepsen, he's clearly having fun in that video. Uh, what did it do to his candidacy and why? Well, I think it effectively ended it. He looked, That was too aggressive, too hot, too excited. It just did not look presidential. Remember, this was the, the night that he, had, he finished third. This didn't happen before the caucuses. It happened immediately after the caucuses. And I think... Um, uh, it, 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 it finished his candidacy. He'd, he'd already failed to meet uh, expectations. You know, it, it, Governor Dean came here and uh, on the strength of the anti-war movement surged into an, an early first place. But he couldn't sustain it. Other candidates started to attack him uh, and he wound up finishing thir third and that got interpreted as a loss. In fact, I ran into Governor Dean at the convention and he said, David, uh, if, if you'd have told me when I first started coming to Iowa that I would finish third, I'd have said, great. But as it turned out, it wasn't what, since he had been in first place, it wasn't what uh, was expected by the political community, and so it was interpreted as a loss. And that Dean scream uh, uh, hurt him nationally. It's interesting, people in the hall uh, didn't see it as a, a bad thing at all, but the directional microphone that he was uh, using and what happened to it uh, and on television really really made him look very non-presidential. How do you think that moment would play in the way we practice politics in 2020 as a nation? Well, it might be more acceptable. <laughs> uh, everybody seems to be screaming. Um, I, I, but I just, I, I always think a candidate has to somewhat, ha for the presidency, has to have some gravitas to be taken seriously. There are a lot of protest candidacies 
uh, people, single issue candidacies, people who have other agendas, they're trying to sell books or whatever, uh, who uh, who get involved. But you know, you, I don't think a, I think it's okay to be angry. You look at you look at who's doing well. There, you could probably get away with that more now. But even so, you you can't look unhinged <laughs> like he did in there. And the way it came off on television was horrible. 2008, once again, a competitive caucus cycle on both sides. Uh, we'll start with the GOP this time around. Mike Huckabee came in first with 34 percent, Mitt Romney, 25, Fred Thompson, 13, John McCain, the eventual nominee, just 13 percent, and Ron Paul, 10 percent. Uh, we've got a bit of video from Governor Huckabee on election night. Let's watch, and then we'll come back and hear your analysis of what happened with the Republican race that year. Tonight, what we have seen is a new day in American politics. A new day is needed in American politics, just like a new day is needed in American government. And tonight, it starts here in Iowa, but it doesn't end here. It goes all the way through the other states and ends at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue one year from now. David Yepsen. Well, again, the 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 importance of uh, of the religious conservatives in the Republican Party, Huckabee mobilized them. He was a very effective speaker. Um, was was uh, part politician and and and, and part preacher. Uh, he came uh, from Hope, Arkansas, where President Clinton comes from. And I remember the joke in that campaign was, "What's in the water in Hope, Arkansas, that uh, enables these uh, fiery candidates to come out and 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 do so well?" Uh, and the other thing that I remember about that was that was the, really the first time the three tickets notion was broken, that John McCain did finish fourth uh, and then to went on to, to win the nomination. So that's where uh, I say it. you have three tickets, now there's four tickets, first class, coach, standby, and baggage. <laughs> On the Democratic side, that year was the year that the turnout was the highest in Iowa history. Barack Obama came in first, John Edwards second, and Hillary Clinton in third place. But they were very close, 29.8 to 29.5 percent. We're going to watch some video of uh, ultimately President Obama, but then candidate Obama uh, claiming victory and Hillary Clinton's concession in Iowa that year. Thank you, Iowa. Yo, they said... They said, they said this day would never come. They said our sights were set too high. They said this country was too divided, too disillusioned to ever come together around a common purpose. But on this January night, at this defining moment in history, you have done what the cynics said we couldn't do. This is, this is a great night for Democrats. We have seen an unprecedented turnout here in Iowa, and that is good news because Today, we're sending a clear message that we are going to have change, and that change will be a Democratic president in the White House in 2009. David Yepsen. Um, what a campaign that was. 
uh, first African American with a with a serious chance of winning, first woman with a, a serious chance of winning. Very tough uh, for Democrats to sort out, um, and uh, and and a, and a really uh, a charismatic figure. And John Edwards was uh, involved in in that race too. Um, and there was a, a big question: you know, can a woman win? Uh, can an African American win? That. Winning in Iowa was very important to Barack Obama's campaign psychologically. Uh, one of the effects that it had was to signal to other African-American voters uh, that he could win white votes. Uh, and it, in fact, did move numbers in South Carolina, where over half that electorate is, uh, is, an African, is African-American. And so that was an important, not only for Barack Obama, but also, I think, in the, in the history of race relations, uh, and in American politics, it just uh, uh, it, it put aside this unelectability thing uh, that that's, was at work. I think it ha I think Hillary Clinton put a big crack in the glass ceiling, uh, even though she didn't win. Uh, she, the, but the the Obama people did something really um, clever that really hurt her, for, kept her from winning. On caucus night, we, as we all know, people show up and and break into preference groups and then a lot delegates and the Obama people wanted so badly to see that she finished third as opposed to second because it would be much more damaging to her that the Obama people were so sophisticated that they always had plenty of people they'd win all the delegates they could win they would take some of their people and send them over to the Edwards campaign the Edwards camp so that he would uh, defeat her for the second place showing a um, lot of anger about that, and in fact, now that that practice has been outlawed in the rules for for this caucus. So that was uh, uh, an interesting wrinkle to that campaign. But I I, go, I think too, it it really uh, Iowans are, were very proud of that, and Barack Obama was very grateful for that. He carried the state twice in the uh, in the general election, uh, and in a way, there, where some of those tests are still going on this year, in, uh, Iowa being asked to test. Uh, about the electability of a woman. That's, a, that's an argument that's being discussed now. And also um, whether the, the country is ready for an openly gay candidate. Uh, Mayor Buttigieg seems to be doing quite well here, uh, and uh, this may be a, an opportunity for, for, the country to, for Iowa and the country to, to, to seriously contemplate the, the, the notion of an openly gay president. One key to that uh, caucus success for uh, uh, President or candidate Obama was the involvement of young people in the state. Have young people subsequently stayed mobilized, stayed involved? Well, yes. I mean, it, it's a it's a changing group of people uh, every cycle. Uh, some of those people in two thousand eight are a little older now, but uh, that that is true. A lot more younger people. Um, it's an interesting thing to me. Uh, they, a lot of them gravitate to Pete Buttigieg, uh, but Bernie Sanders. Uh, attracts some of the youngest uh, uh, people I, in in the in the campaign. You can participate if you're 17, because as long as you're an eligible voter in, uh, in November of, of, of 2020. Uh, so yes, and it's uh, it's refreshing. Uh, the energy, the activism, uh, all candidates are, are putting a, a lot of emphasis on uh, attracting younger voters, and they tend to be constant. Many of them tend to be concentrated in college towns. So one of the things that's significant is, in addition to reporting the number of delegates that a candidate wins, they're going to report 
the, the total number of people that initially show up for that candidate. And that's important because, you know, after you win all the delegates in Iowa City, a very liberal place, uh, and then you, the, after you win all the delegates, you know, the next 150 people that you have really don't count for much. Now, uh, voters will, if you show up, your preference is going to be reported by the state party uh, on caucus night. And that'll be an interesting test to, because it could be confusing to people because there'll be the initial preferences of people have when they went in and then how they, how the delegates uh, broke down in a race as competitive as this uh, at the top, you could see it's a real prospect that you could have someone winning the most votes uh, but not getting the most delegates. And since you said the expectations game in Iowa has always been an important part of the story, this could just add to that, it sounds like. Uh, exactly. It's just the expectations game. Uh, candidates, you have to surprise the media. You have to surprise the political community. So you need to come to Iowa, and you need to do well, and you need to have reporters and the political community say, oh, uh, candidate so-and-so is uh, doing well here, but you don't want to get it to the point where they're predicting you're going to win. Howard Dean uh, soared initially. It resulted in attacks on him that brought him down. We're seeing that same thing being played out now in this campaign. Elizabeth Warren uh, shot up to the top, then her campaign has sagged. Uh, Pete Buttigieg moved up. His campaign has sagged some. So campaigns have to spin reporters uh, into saying, saying good things about their campaign without making predictions about uh, who's going to win because you don't, don't want to come out of this like Howard Dean who finishes third. He got one of the tickets, but is seen as a defeat. He didn't do as well. Uh, as he was expected to do. Well, back to 2012, when President Obama was seeking re-election, on the Republican side, there was an issue with how the votes were tabulated. The results uh, that night were very close. We're going to watch a video of two of the candidates and their statements to supporters in Iowa on caucus night and then talk about the outcome. what the final vote tally is going to be, but congratulations to Rick Santorum. This has been a great uh, victory uh, for him and for his effort. He's worked very hard in Iowa. We, uh, we also feel it's been a great victory for us here. Uh, for Ron Paul as well. Ron Paul's had a great night. So that uh, 2012 Iowa caucus, uh, Mitt Romney was declared the winner on caucus night by less than 10 votes. I, I, my notes say eight votes. And then 16 days later, the victory officially went to Rick Santorum by 34. What happened and what has the state done uh, to fortify itself against this happening again? Well, what happened is Rick Santorum was really cheated. Uh, he won and he didn't get credit for it. And what is a caucus victory? It's media attention. Uh, it's money that you raise off that momentum. And to be denied that on opening night, you can't come back two weeks later and take back the Time magazine cover that you got. So uh, he was really cheated, and that was, a, uh, I think, a sad uh, uh, episode. The caucuses have always been criticized for the, the convoluted counting system. It's complicated. It's not a primary, which is very clean. You go in, you vote, the numbers are counted. 
Uh, these votes uh, are straw votes on the Republican side. In other words, they put a slip of paper in a, uh, in a box and then count it. Uh, on the Democratic side, it's this initial preferences and delegates. It's very confusing. There are a couple thousand precincts. There's all kinds of opportunities for counts to go wrong. And, you know, that's one of the criticisms that has been made. Both parties in the state have tried to get it right and, and accurate and verifiable. We live in a, there's not much tolerance for, uh, for error in the way we tabulate elections in America after the year, year 2000. Uh, and so the, ten, the standards are a little different than they were in, in 76 or in 84. In 1984, John Glenn finished way back in the pack. And the, the, the Democratic Party told me, well, we're, we're sure Mondale won and we're sure Gary Hart came in second. But after that, we're not so sure. Well, that's terrible. Um, you know, they left John Glenn by the roadside when he may, in fact, have done better um, than the reporting. So both parties are really watched pretty closely for how they tabulate the votes, how, not only and how quickly they get them, but making sure they declare the right winner uh, because, you, you know, you can, you can mess up a race for sheriff in Iowa and go back and get a recount and get the right person in office. You mess up a caucus count in this state, you can't go back and take back the Time magazine cover that a candidate was, was denied. In addition to potential miscounts, uh, now everyone worries about hacking into the political system yeah. and tabulation. Uh, what has the state done technology-wise to fortify itself against hacking? Well, both parties are trying to um, have secure systems. Uh, they've created apps that will be used to re count results and report it. More importantly, they have backup systems, so uh, there won't be a short count. Uh, that uh, has happened in, uh, in, in 1980 when George Herbert Walker Bush defeated Ronald Reagan in Iowa and the Reagan people thought they got cheated because the computers went down and when Bush was ahead, um, Bush people say, we went back and verified and we did win. But the point is, the, the parties are trying to develop systems to, to, to provide verification and to limit the ability for someone to, to hack into it. It would take a very big conspiracy to manipulate those results uh, at most points along the way, and we would certainly hear about it and see about it. But, as everybody says, anything's hackable, so there has to be a kind of a separate count and a verification that the number that's reported uh, to, say, on, on caucus night to, in headquarters in Des Moines is, in fact, what happened uh, at the precinct. And you don't have a situation like you had in 2016 when some Republican didn't get the results in and, and went to bed and, and, and you had this fiasco over Santorum and, and Romney and, and who won. So they're aware of it, but, but I'm not sure they'll ever get a 100% uh, 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 ironclad system. So on to the most recent history in 2016. We're going to start with the video of Hillary Rodham Clinton and uh, Donald Trump on caucus night. So as I stand here tonight, breathing a big sigh of relief, thank you, Iowa. I want you to know I will keep doing what I have done my entire life. I will keep standing up for you. I will keep fighting for you. I will always work to achieve the America that I believe in, where the promise of that dream that we hold out to our children and our grandchildren never fades. 
Unbelievable. I have to start by saying I absolutely love the people of Iowa. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, on June 16th, when we started this journey, there were 17 candidates. I was told by everybody, do not go to Iowa. You could never finish even in the top 10. And I said, but I have friends in Iowa. I know a lot of people in Iowa. I think they'll really like me. Let's give it a shot. They said, don't do it. I said, I have to do it. And we finished second. And I want to tell you something. I'm just honored. I'm really honored. So very close between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, just a percentage, not even a full percentage point there. And then Bernie Sanders went on to have a decisive victory in New Hampshire. What should we know about last go round in Iowa and ultimately New Hampshire? Well, um, this the, the, the fiasco, if you will, in Iowa, that close count, uh, is one of the reasons the rules, is the big reason why the Democratic rules are changed. This notion that everybody's vote should count is important. And, uh, in fact, Senator Sanders people believe to this day that they, in fact, had more people showing up for uh, him than Hillary Clinton had showing up for her. She got a, a, a small percentage more delegates than he did. And that was what was being counted that year. So people said, well, she won. She certainly grabbed him and said, I won, and, and ran with that. Um, now that won't happen again. Because it, it, it uh, really energized, I think, the Sanders people. They felt a little, little bit cheated. And, uh, and I think that was a, a help to him going in New Hampshire. It's not always a good thing to win in Iowa or do well in Iowa because you can become a big target in New Hampshire. Uh, voters there like to make up their own mind. They like to say, you know, uh, we pick presidents here. Uh, and and so I, I think it put her at a real disadvantage heading into to New Hampshire. And on the on the Republican side, um, I, uh, President Trump, Donald Trump at the time, finished in, in second place. He was not happy with that. He acted happy. But the, behind the scenes, he was very upset. He thought some people were playing some games to, by saying uh, Ben Carson uh, was not, was dropping out of the race. On, on caucus day, and so a lot of those votes went to Ted Cruz, uh, enabling Cruz to win. Uh, but nevertheless, it was enough to get Trump one of the tickets out of here. We have about four minutes left in our time with you. Uh, last question for you on, on, on politics and policy. How is the economy doing in the state of Iowa? Always a factor in any uh, decision. People will go to the polls. And it, the state has been impacted by the president's policy on trade and tariffs. How's the economy doing? Uh, the economy is doing uh, well, not as well as it is in other parts uh, of the country. A lot of uncertainty in the farm belt. Farm bankruptcies are going up. It's important to remember that, you know, people think of Iowa as a farm state. Well, it's a rural state, but actually the, the financial services sector is more important to the state's economy. Uh, rural America has been hit hard by bad weather, flooding, uh, and by these tariffs. Now, the Trump administration is very mindful of that and has poured billions of dollars into aid to help farmers get through uh, this uh, bad patch. We all keep waiting for these tariffs, the effect of these tariffs, to turn into a bad story politically uh, for Donald Trump. And I don't think it's happened yet. Uh, it may, but right now the, there's a little more optimism uh, in, in rural parts of the state. 
that uh, that maybe the, the the tariffs are behind uh, behind the tariff episode is behind it uh, itself behind it, the country. Um, so I th I think the state probably leans uh, Republican at this point. I think other observers of this uh, feel the same way that it has not been a a fatal blow. But the challenge, the, the, what's going to change this, and in fact some of the, the models uh, of the electorate show that uh, Iowa probably would, would vote for the Republican. But what's changing this, and you mentioned it earlier, is the arrival of young people. Uh, if, if millennials, Gen Zers, iGeners, the youngest voters come roaring into the electorate, as we're seeing that they're doing on issues like climate change, uh, then that can change that equation. So Iowa is in play. Uh, the economy is okay for a lot of us, but there are a lot of people who are still working two jobs, and, and, and the growth in this state has not been uh, what it is in other states. So my last question is a personal one. Four decades of covering the Iowa caucuses. What is uh, the moment for you that is most memorable, the one that you think of all the time when you try to explain what the caucus is all about? Oh, well, just the up-close and personal nature, particularly the access you have to candidates. Um, I, that, I can't think of any one. Uh, I've had great uh, opportunities, and I'm grateful for the chance to, um, uh, to watch this unfold. It's, a, it's been a, a, I have great seats in the game <laughs> uh, to see the best people in American politics, the best candidates, staff, media people. Uh, and it's been humbling to me to, to think I've had uh, a responsibility in covering the early stages of a race for the American presidency. It's, uh, it's pretty sobering. Well, David Yepsen, I hope you don't mind if I dub you the Dean of Iowa Political Journalists. Uh, thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.